Taylor, how's it going, man? Oh, hanging in there. Uh, thanks a lot for having me back on for this quick addendum, Dave. No problem. No problem. Uh, it sounded like it's something that needed to happen. So definitely let's get her, let's get her rolling. Yeah. And, and just before we dive in, I'd like to apologize to everyone for having to bring this subject up again so soon. I, I'm, it wasn't my intent, uh, but I've just had some people point out some things I got wrong and I want to own that. Um, so I, I asked Dave if I could take just 10, 15 minutes because I want to be as honest and fully transparent about everything as I possibly can. Um, so there was one comment in particular that in hindsight, I wish I hadn't made in that in the previous episode. And so I'd like to set the record straight about it and, and afterward address a couple other points. So this clip is 28 seconds long. Um, it starts at the three hour, 41 minute and 35 second timestamp on the last episode. Uh, I'm just going to play it real quick so it's fresh in all of our minds. As they, they're part of a community, a fundamentalist community, and it was very divisive. A lot, even his blood brothers, a lot of his blood brothers were very critical, especially at first of that decision that he made. And you know, they were. <laughs> one brother offered to cut off his head, uh, like it, it was literally that degree of of uh, extremism in the, in this conversation. I, I'm not. So, uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody is clear. That's what I'm going to be speaking to first off. Um, and so just for the record, first off, I did not lie. Um, that comment was made in writing and, uh, multiple witnesses have corroborated that it did happen. Um, and when I first read it, it was just on a discussion group that I was invited to. And I, really could hardly believe my eyes. I figured it had to be a joke. I mean, who offers to, to cut off their brother's well, this, head? For this real? was on like a messaging app, right? Correct. Yes. Okay. And, and, but so the fact that it was said, even in jest made me wonder if there was any possibility there, that there was something darker involved. Cause I, like I say, I don't know the person who said it personally. So you um, didn't know it was in jest at the time, correct? I mean, <laughs> It, it, how do you take it for serious? I, I, I mean, I did not know for sure it was a joke. Uh, but so, yeah, so I have had multiple assurances from mutual friends in okay. the last two days that it absolutely was just a joke. And and so, like, just in hindsight, I wish I hadn't mentioned it uh, or that I would have known to call out absolutely that it was a joke. Um, and for that, I just want to say I'm very sorry and freely admit I made a mistake. I think we all make them. Yeah. I'm sure I, in, in a in a four and a half hour conversation, almost everybody's going to say something that that they regret. And if you do it as much as I do, it's a it's a <laughs> foregone conclusion. So sure, but I, I that is such a sensitive issue. Okay, so this kind of leads into the second um, point I wanted to address because because this the, the the concern that was expressed is that that I have accused all fundamentalists who support the ban of being violent people. Now, I never said that, nor did I intend that to be conveyed. Um, so I'd like to just clarify what I meant right now. I do not believe that everyone who sincerely believes in the ban is a violent person or would ever commit an act of violence. Um, however, that said, I absolutely stand by my position that the ban itself is inherently violent. Now, in the, in the last episode, I didn't read Brigham's words that he used in the 1852 address, uh, which is where he announced the ban. Um, because to be completely honest, I didn't want to make Brigham look bad. I mean, I, like I've said many times, I love Brigham Young. I'm grateful for all the good he did. And, and I acknowledge he was an amazing 
amazing servant of God throughout his life. Uh, but in hindsight, I think these words do need to be addressed, especially for listeners who may not have read or heard them before, or or maybe it's been a while and they and and the the memory is not fresh. So uh, if you're okay with it, I'm going to read some of yeah. the words from Brigham's 1852 address now. Okay, quote. But let me tell you further, let my seed mingle with the seed of Cain. That brings the curse upon me and upon my generations. We will reap the same rewards with Cain. In the priesthood, I will tell you what it will do. Were the children of God to mingle their seed with the seed of Cain, it would not only bring the curse of being deprived of the power of the priesthood upon themselves, but then entail it upon their children after them, and they cannot get rid of it. If a man in an unguarded moment should commit such a transgression, if he would walk up and say, cut off my head and kill man, woman, and child, it would do a great deal towards atoning for the sin." Would this be to curse them? No, it would be a blessing to them. It would do them good that they might be saved with their brethren. A man would shudder should they hear us talk about killing folk, but it is one of the greatest blessings to some to kill them, although the true principles of it, of it are not understood. Unquote. Uh, so I am not exaggerating or misrepresenting this in any way. I am quoting Brigham Young's words verbatim. Um, if anyone thinks that these words are not violent, I would ask you to please explain to me how they are not violent, because I can't see any other way to understand them. I mean, he's Brigham. He's plain. It's forceful. It's just his characteristically blunt way that he has. Um, so here's the thing. I do not believe all fundamentalists who believe in the ban are violent. On the contrary, I <clears throat> believe the vast majority of fundamentalists who believe in the ban are nonviolent and peaceful. But it is a fact that some Mormon fundamentalists have been violent. There's historical examples. Now, all the fundamentalists I know personally condemn the murders committed by that have been committed by a small minority of fundamentalists in the past. And I'm not saying everyone is like those violent fundamentalists. I, I don't know a single fundamentalist who is out of the hundreds and hundreds I've personally met that, that is violent. But it is, is it possible that somebody out there could there go there again someday? I think nobody can deny that it is a possibility. There are always nutcases in any society. Um, but the most interesting thing here to me, though, is the uh, the lack of violence within the vast majority of all fundamentalist groups historically and today. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no evidence that Brigham himself ever personally acted on the penalty he prescribed in that speech. And I personally don't think he would have been capable of doing it, even if he'd had an opportunity. Um, that's my belief. I, furthermore, I, I think all or at least the vast majority of Mormon fundamentalists who believe in the ban today would never personally act on it either. Fair? Right. Yeah. Fair. No. Yeah. But, I, but, but, I, oh, go ahead. But, but let's think about that for a sec, because this begs a really important question. If you do believe in the ban, why don't you believe in the penalty? The penalty and the ban were delivered by the same man, Brigham Young, in the same exact speech. So if you're going to accept the ban as revelation from God, how do you reject what he said immediately after? Like the, the penalty for interracial marriages, it, it, that would be logically inconsistent. There's there's a there's a phrase that's been kind of kind of thrown around. It's become commonplace these days. It's called cognitive dissonance. 
Um, and I think it applies here. I am advocating a very logically consistent position, which requires no cognitive dissonance whatsoever by asking whether Brigham's priesthood ban was inspired of God or not. This doesn't mean Brigham was a bad guy or not a prophet or inherently evil or anything. It just means I believe a good guy, a great man, had a bad opinion. And, and I believe it's our personal responsibility to get the spirit of God within our own hearts and judge righteously. Not condemn the man who taught it, but only condemn the false and violent doctrine. As far as I know, there's not a single fundamentalist group out there today that hasn't rejected the latter half of the ban, the penalty, already. So, so that is what I wanted to correct and, and clarify on the point of the priesthood ban with regards to violence. Um, so to be, to be clear, despite the violence inherent to the doctrine, we as fundamentalists are not inherently more dangerous than any other person in the world, and neither was Brigham Young. I think that reality speaks significantly to the band's legitimacy. Perfect. Yeah. No, I I, uh, I think so. And, and you got to look at when this was delivered. If I'm not mistaken, this comes forward in the Mormon Reformation period, right? And this is in a period where Brigham sees... People are slacking a little bit. And Brigham was trying to make a point and drive it home. And I, I like you, don't think Brigham Young would have done it. Um, and but but it's worth bearing out. And I appreciate you coming back on to to clear that up. Okay. Thanks. Uh so yeah, the the another concern that was raised is whether I should have shared details about the prayer meeting that happened in Missouri. Um, and so just to be clear, the reason I addressed the issue publicly right now in the last episode is because details about that meeting had already been shared with people in other groups, including my own group here in Utah, uh, from an antagonistic source. So it was already out, but it was being shared from an adversarial perspective by somebody who opposed the decision. If that had not happened, I might not have written the, that section into the essays, or at least when I did. And, and I definitely would not have talked about the Missouri meeting on the podcast, but, but, but because that's what did happen, I felt it is important to give the full story so that everyone who has seen the minutes or has heard rumors about it has access to all the facts before drawing conclusions. Um, I've, I've not received a single complaint from anyone who was part of the meeting, only from people who were not part of the meeting and who opposed the decision that was made there. Yeah. Um, and, and then the last thing, and uh, this is actually from an anonymous contributor who submitted something to me on the website. So I appreciate that. I, I, I had missed this in my research. So while it doesn't necessarily change any of the conclusions I've come to, I do believe it's worth mentioning because it shows I was wrong about one of the historical points I made. Um, because you remember, I attributed Mosiah Hancock's 1855 dream about the, you know, pre-mortal existence and the neutral spirits um, being the black race here on earth. Uh, I, I thought that was the first documented instance of this idea being taught chronologically. Uh, actually, Orson Hyde preached a sermon on this subject in 1845. So 10 years before that, um, the year after the martyrdom, in which he said, and I'll quote, at the time the devil was cast out of heaven, there were some spirits that did not know who had the authority, whether God or the devil. Conse they consequently did not take a very active part on either side, but rather thought the devil had been abused and considered he had rather the best claim to the government. These spirits were not considered bad enough to be cast down to hell, 
and never have bodies, neither were they considered worthy of an honorable body upon this earth. But it came to pass that Ham, the son of Noah, saw the nakedness of his father while he lay drunk in his tent, and he, with, quote, wicked joy, unquote, ran like Rigdon, and made the wonderful disclosure to his brethren, while Shem and Japheth took a garment, with pity and compassion, laid it upon their shoulders, went backwards, and covered their father, and saw not his nakedness. The joy of the first was to expose... That of the second was to cover the unseemliness of their father. The conduct of the former brought the curse of slavery upon him, while that of the latter secured blessings, jurisdiction, power, and dominion. Here was the beginning of blessing and cursing in the family of Noah, and here also is the cause of both. Canaan, the son of Ham, received the curse, for Noah wished to place the curse as remote from himself as possible. He therefore placed it upon his grandson instead of his son. Now, it would seem cruel to force pure celestial spirits into the world through the lineage of Canaan that had been cursed. This would be ill-appropriate, putting the precious and vile together. But those spirits in heaven that rather lent an influence to the devil, thinking had a little the best right to govern, but did not take a very active part anyway, were required to come into the world and take bodies in the accursed lineage of Canaan, and hence the n-word or african race now therefore all those who are halting concerning who has the right to govern had better look at the fate of their brethren that have gone before them and take warning in time lest they learn obedience by the things which they suffer choose ye this day whom ye will serve these things are among the mysteries of the kingdom and i have told them not by constraint or by commandment but by permission unquote now, this, we have to consider the context. So this was a speech given by Elder Orson Hyde to the high priest quorum in Nauvoo on April 27, 1845. So uh, just under a year after the martyrdom, but before the big meeting where Sidney Rigdon and, and uh, Brigham Young addressed the body of the saints. So before the succession crisis had been kind of resolved. Um, so th the title of this speech is Upon the Course and Conduct of Mr. Sidney Rigdon and the Merits of His Claims to the Presidency of the Church. So, um, you know, so of course, uh, just a, f a few weeks after this, Brigham Young was sustained as the rightful successor at, well, the 12th, with Brigham Young as, as the president, were sustained to lead the church. Um, you know, it was not a unanimous decision. You know, not everybody sustained Brigham Young, but everyone who went west to Utah. <laughs> did sustain Brigham Young and not Sidney Rigdon. Um, and so he's using this, this biblical story as rhetoric to essentially um, persuade kind of a little bit through fear uh, the people who were considering following Sidney Rigdon to know you, you shouldn't follow him. He's like Canaan or he's like Ham and, and, you know, Brigham Young and the 12, they're like Shem and Japheth. And, and so, that that is what it is. It was said uh, at that time, and so three important details that that stand out to me from this account is first off, Orson Hyde does not attribute these ideas to Joseph Smith. That that's number one that has to be uh, stated. And I read it's a long discourse; it's about thirty five pages. And I and there, I'm going to put the link on the on the website so you can read it in full yourself. But I I read it. It Joseph. He, Orson Hyde does not attribute these teachings and coming ideas coming from Joseph Smith. Secondly, this directly contradicts several things Joseph Smith told Orson Hyde to his face. 
you know, remember that conversation between Joseph Smith and Orson Hyde when he says change there the, the black situation with the whites and they would be like them. They have souls and are subjects of salvation. And then later on, Joseph says in another conversation that, that or in the same conversation, put them on a national, he would put them on a national equalization, etc. So, so this flies in the face of things that Joseph Smith did to talk and say to Orson Hyde. Um, and then the third thing, and perhaps the most important, Brigham Young himself refuted that he, and like that the, the, this idea was a thing. And in 1869, he emphatically stated that he had heard Joseph teach the opposite. So, so these are the reasons why the above quote does not change my conclusions about what I said before. Uh, but in the interest of honesty and, you know, just representing the history as 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 accurately as possible i will be adding this quote to the website um as an addendum to the essay at blacksinthepriesthood.com and and i'll i'll include a link to the full speech and uh you know the person who contributed this did not leave their name or email so if whoever submitted it happens to be listening right now thank you very much i appreciate it uh one other thing i wanted to point out is that it doesn't say anything about restriction of priesthood just slavery is a penalty correct i mean it doesn't actually go anywhere it just talks about it. they are cursed it's a cursed lineage and and he's implying that anybody who follows sydney rigdon is basically guilty of the same thing and it, you know okay. so it, it doesn't actually speak to priesthood eligibility or anything else related but it, it is the first chronological documented instance of the teaching that there were neutral spirits in heaven. So that's why I do believe it is germane to this discussion and investigation. Perfect. Well, dude, I appreciate your honesty. So that's good stuff. So thank you. I've had to issue one of these once before myself and I understand. So <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's all good. I appreciate it. All right. See ya. Thanks.